This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode also features themes of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. She was 17 years old when her mother was murdered. How did the turbulent events affect Mariah Day, the daughter of Betsy Faria? This is Method and Madness, Episode 47, The Murder of Betsy Faria. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hikers stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call. The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. What does justice look like to you? I mean, as much as I don't want to go through another trial, um, I think it's important for her to be charged. And I know they're going for the death penalty unless she confesses. But we all know she won't do that. So, yeah, it'd be nice to see her charged. Um, I think in in a perfect world that the um, prosecutors and the people who were lazy and neglectful in the initial investigation should be held accountable. Accountability. Holding people to a high standard, particularly those in positions of authority. A mutual understanding of what they're expected to deliver and how they're expected to perform, not to mention consistent follow-through. Hmm. We'll revisit that. First, I want to thank my listeners for tuning into this very special episode, and I also want to say that this is not an episode dedicated to Pam Hupp. Yes, she's a part of the story, obviously, but while I set out to focus this episode on another woman, a sister, a mom, a wife, a daughter, and her family that was affected not only by her murder, but by the investigation that followed, the wrongful conviction of their loved one, and the irreparable damage that has been done. Today, we're talking about Betsy Faria. Also, I should point out at the top to avoid any confusion, Betsy's oldest daughter is named Leah Day. The woman who prosecuted Russ Faria was named Leah Askey, and she now goes by Leah Cheney. So whenever possible to avoid confusion, I'll try to emphasize who I'm talking about. Here we go. Imagine being a family member of one of the approximately 15,000 people murdered in the U.S. in 2011. The trauma that that brings is unimaginable, a club that nobody wants to be a part of. Let's drill down and imagine that trauma seen through the eyes of a child, a teenager, who has just learned that their mother suddenly died, only to find out it was murder, 
and the accused is her father. Now they've lost two parents in the blink of an eye, and what follows is a whirlwind. Information, interviews, interrogation rooms, court visits, trials, and confusion. Things they're not prepared for. Where authority figures are the people they're now looking to for guidance. Authority figures that were complete strangers, but hey, they're the subject matter experts, right? The investigators? The lawyers? And then the new normal. The world they've been thrust into is now turned on its head once more, as everything they've been told is wrong. And today they feel they've been fed mistruths, revised stories, even lies. To top it all off, their mother's accused murderer has become somewhat of a celebrity. Today's guest is a fierce woman, an outspoken advocate for transparency in media, and someone who's using her own platform to raise awareness that the victims and their families matter. You may already be familiar with this case, but in case you aren't, 63-year-old Pamela Hupp is accused of perpetrating the 2011 murder of Betsy Faria and is awaiting trial as of this recording. But originally, Betsy's husband, Russ, was arrested, charged, and wrongfully convicted of killing his wife. Luckily, he was granted a new trial and acquitted in 2015. He'd allegedly been framed by Betsy's friend, Pam Hupp. Once Russ was freed, Pam felt the heat of the investigation and tried to put that heat back onto Russ. In 2016, she lured an innocent man, 33-year-old Louis Gumpenberger, into her home and shot and killed him. It was a premeditated murder she thought she could get away with by claiming Russ had sent the man to her home to rob her. Pam is now serving a life sentence for the murder of Lewis. There's been a lot of coverage of this case, podcasts, TV shows, and a dramatized miniseries. But the focus rarely seems to be on the victims or their families. A couple of months ago, I reached out to Mariah Day, the youngest daughter of Betsy Faria, and asked her if she wanted to come on the show. I noticed Mariah was speaking out about raising awareness and telling victim stories in a thoughtful way, and people are responding. You can see it in the comments on her posts. People are not only showing support, but considering, reconsidering, how they can be a better true crime consumer. Of course, with having Mariah on, I didn't want to re-traumatize her, so this is the story that she helped me tell the side we don't always see or hear about. Let's dive in. Hi, I'm Mariah Day. I am the daughter of Betsy Faria. It was March 24th, 1969. John had just married Yoko. The number one movie at the box office was Funny Girl. And the number one song on the U.S. charts was Dizzy by Tommy Rowe. And Elizabeth Betsy Meyer was born in Richmond Heights, Missouri, to parents Janet and Kenneth. She has three sisters, Mary, Julie, and Pamela. She attended St. Dominic High School in O'Fallon, Missouri, and growing up was someone that her friends called a sister, 
always compassionate, and always making time for others. When I asked Betsy's youngest daughter, Mariah, if there was a photo of her mom that she wanted to have accompany this episode release, she sent one with a note that said, I just love this one. And immediately I could see why. Betsy had this contagious smile, and I found myself smiling just looking at it. Betsy has two daughters, Leah, the oldest, and Mariah, and she married their stepfather, Russ Faria, on January 21, 2000, when the girls were seven and three, respectively. Russ was the girl's father figure growing up. So what was Betsy like? If you Google her, it may be hard to find answers. The top result in my Google searches would turn up articles featuring another woman's name prominently. Mariah talks about growing up. We always knew who to go to if we wanted the parent to say yes, and that was my mom. Right. Um, So she was kind of like the pushover parent. If we were grounded, we'd be like, Mom, can we just, like, please go and do this? Or, like, she was a pushover. So, um, yeah. Um, Childhood was always fun with her because she was a DJ and we would go to her, go to her DJ shows. Um, so that was probably one of the most things I miss is just doing so many things with her. Um, they took us on a lot of vacations. They tried to give us a fun childhood. Um, and they did. We went vacationing a lot, camping. Um, I just feel like we were always doing something. Mariah is now a mom herself of two little ones. And just like her own mother, who she looks so much like, she's giving her children memories. She's recently took her oldest to his first concert. So mom was a DJ. That had to be fun growing up. What was it like? I've never seen a DJ like my mom. Like she will even go out into the crowd and get everyone dancing. Like she just loved it. (laughs) She started when she was like 15. She hauled all her, she hauled a big stereo to a party and my aunt helped her. And then ever since then, she um, went to broadcasting school in Florida. Um, and her name was Dusty Myers on the radio. <laughs> yeah. And then she started her own business and it was called Party Starters DJ Service. And she was even DJing when she had stage four cancer. Betsy Faria had been given a terminal diagnosis and was undergoing chemotherapy in 2011 when she was just 42 years old. She received an outpouring of support from friends, her sisters, family, the kind of support anyone would be lucky to have. It was obvious she was very loved and described by those closest to her with words like energetic and bubbly. One friend in particular that rolled up their sleeves was Bessie's friend, Pam Hupp. I met her, like, when they first started, um, when they first met. They were at State Farm. Um, So I think I like would meet her when I went to my mom's work. Or like they first started out being walking buddies after coworkers. Um, So like I said, my mom had so many friends. So Pam was just like one of many. And then when my mom got cancer, she had so many friends like bring her dinner or want to take her to chemo or drive her around or just be there for her. And so Pam was the one of many who stepped up. There was nothing about Pam Hupp that really stood out to Betsy's family. 
The closest friends that Betsy had were her sisters and friends from high school, but for Pam, well, it seemed to Mariah that Betsy was her only friend. In interviews, Russ Faria has said the same. It was December 23, 2011, when Betsy changed the beneficiary on her $150,000 life policy from her husband Russ to her friend Pam Hupp. The two women had the signing of the documents witnessed by librarian Lauren Manganelli at St. Charles City County Library. Lauren would later say she was unsure why she'd been asked to witness the signing, as she was not a notary. Betsy had been planning for her daughters, being mindful of how they'd be cared for if she'd lost her battle with cancer. So when Pam convinced her that she'd be a trustworthy source— someone who would ensure that Leah and Mariah received every penny one day. Betsy must have thought it sounded like a solid plan. And so two days before Christmas in 2011, Betsy made it official. Four days later, she would be dead. It was a Thursday, two days after Christmas, a typical gray, cold day near Troy, Missouri, and Betsy was scheduled for chemotherapy. To her surprise, her friend Pam showed up and insisted on giving Betsy a ride home. Later that evening, around 9.40 p.m., Russ Faria called 911. He gave the operator, Tammy Vaughn, the address of his emergency and stated his name at her request. When Tammy asked Russ what was going on there, he responded that he had just gotten home from a friend's house and that his wife killed herself and had a knife sticking out of her neck. He was frantic, crying, and tried to describe what he'd walked into and that Betsy wasn't breathing. While dispatching police and ambulance, Tammy kept Russ on the line and calmly asked him questions, while also reassuring him that help was on the way. Tammy would later tell reporters that Russ seemed genuinely distraught when they spoke on the phone. It's a gut-wrenching call to listen to, 10 minutes long, with a shocked Russ trying to give information to Tammy and at the same time having the realization over and over again that he just walked into his worst nightmare. This call would later be analyzed, picked apart, dissected with experts, implying that Russ was some kind of descendant of Sarah Bernhardt. First responders determined quickly upon arrival that Betsy had not died by suicide. She'd been murdered, stabbed 55 times, the knife still in her neck, and a second knife under a couch pillow. It appeared to Fire Lieutenant Martin Charnecki that she'd been dead for at least 30 minutes. Fire Captain Robert Schrammick noted it was more like two hours. A paramedic and an ambulance team supervisor also determined from the crime scene that Betsy had been dead for a significant period of time. That's important to remember for later. Russ was brought to the Lincoln County Sheriff's Department at 11 p.m. and questioned for over 10 hours. Mariah, who was at her grandmother's house that night, spoke to me about the next morning. I mean... So we found out um, the next morning they came to my grandma's house and um, 
told us something happened to Betsy. Like it was like four detectives and they said something happened to Betsy. And my grandma's like, oh my gosh, was it cancer? Is she okay? And they're like, no, she passed away last night. Um, we need to separate everyone and talk about me, my grandma and my grandma's friend who was staying with us at the time of the holidays. Um, they separated us in different rooms and asked us what, how things were the night before my mom left and um, what we were doing last night. And I mean, to me at that time, it kind of seemed like they were doing their jobs. I mean, they just told me my mom passed away. So I'm just like kind of in shock and just tears rolling down my face as they're asking me these questions. And I asked them um, if it was suicide because my mom has had um, scares before. Um, she kind of battled with depression all her life. So, um, you know, the happiest people are the ones that suffer the most on the inside. So um, after they left, my thir first thought was, oh, my gosh, like, I hope Russ is OK. Um, where's Russ? And we they told us he was still at um, the police station. And so my aunt ended up driving me there because all I wanted to do was see Russ at that time. And they said, you can't see him. We're still questioning him. So like, I still didn't know at this time it was a homicide or anything. Um, I, I don't even know when I found out just because trauma. Sure. <laughs> um, I feel like either my grandma told me, or I know my aunts told me that he's the only suspect. And like in my mind, I'm just like not thinking. And then actually I forgot to say that um, the night I found out that my mom was passed away, um, they had me go and look in the crime scene at night. So it was just me and just to, to rule out a robbery and make sure nothing was tampered with. So there she was. 17 years old, going to the crime scene where her mother had just suffered a horrible death. She saw the carpet that had once been soaked in blood but was now cut up, a large section missing. The house was cluttered, so it was difficult to see if anything had been tampered with, but Mariah noticed that the jewelry box Russ had given her mother for Christmas was broken. When the police searched and secured the crime scene, they found a blood smear on Betsy's and Russ's bedroom light switch, as well as blood on Russ's slippers, which were located in the bedroom closet. The crime scene investigators found no bloody footprints, no bloody or wet towels, which would indicate an attempt at a cleanup, no blood in Russ's car, and nothing that showed any blood had been wiped up. Mariah was shown Russ's slippers with the bloodstains, and now looking back, she realizes that this was the investigator's way of planting those seeds, that her stepfather was the number one suspect. The prosecuting attorney, Leah Askey, and Ryan McCarrick, the detective. Um, yeah. They're the ones who brought us into this room with my family around a table, and they're telling us everything that, why they think he did it, basically. Um, and... We have no idea how this process goes, but I did find out that the way they went about that was completely unprofessional and they don't ever bring the families in and let them so then let them in on the case so close. 
the Lincoln County Sheriff had initiated a major case squad to organize the investigation and the resources needed. St. Peter's Police Lieutenant Mark Shimweg was in charge, and Ryan McCarrick was assigned second-in-command and report writer. And while it's hard to pinpoint the exact moment when it was decided Russ was guilty before being proven so, it's likely it was driven by that 911 call. Let's play devil's advocate for a moment. You've got the notion, the statistics that say it's always the husband. Russ was the one who found Betsy and called 911. He had jumped to the conclusion that Betsy had taken her life, to the bewilderment of police who said it was quite obvious she'd been murdered. Based on that, and in those first 48 hours, Russ should have been looked at closely as a person of interest until he could be ruled out. But from there, evidence collecting and fact-finding became secondary to confirmation bias. It was no secret who Betsy had been with that evening. Text messages and phone calls Family members' statements, they all knew she was with Pam. Even Pam herself would later admit that when she spoke with investigators that, yes, she was with Betsy. But still, the focus was only on Russ. What Russ did have going for him was a solid alibi. A night spent far away from the crime scene, all corroborated by his friends. And literally, he had the receipts. Let's break down the timeline. On that Thursday, December 27th, Russ and Betsy communicated throughout the day regarding what their plans were for that evening. Text messages show that. Russ's plan was to go to his friend's house, Michael Corbin's, for game night, where they'd meet weekly for role-playing games, movies, etc., with about four other friends. Betsy's plan was to go to her afternoon chemotherapy treatment and then to her mom's house. Russ would pick her up from there after his game night and bring her home. At 5 p.m., Russ, who was working from the home that he shared with Betsy, left his house located right outside Troy, Missouri, and headed to the Corbin residence. During the 26-minute drive, he made four stops. From 5.16 to 5.20, he stopped at a gas station in Troy. 5.31 to 5.32, he stopped at a different gas station in Wentzville to buy cigarettes. At 5.52, he stopped at a store in Lake St. Louis for dog food, and from 5.56 to 5.58, he stopped at a store in O'Fallon to buy two bottles of iced tea. There was a time-stamped receipt for the dog food, and at the three other stops, he was recorded on camera. At 6 o'clock p.m., Russ arrived at Michael Corbin's house and the group watched movies. Russ had gotten a text from Betsy after her chemo appointment was complete that she didn't need a ride. The texts read, Pam Hupp wants to bring me home to bed. She also said that her white blood cell count was low and she was tired. Russ wrote back to make sure she is bringing you, to which Betsy confirmed, quote, yes, she offered and I accepted. At 7 p.m., Betsy called her friend Laurel and also spoke to her daughter, Leah, by phone. At 7.04 p.m., Pam was driving and pulled into the driveway of the Faria's ranch-style home, Betsy in the passenger seat. At this point, Pam called her husband, Mark, 
and put Betsy on the phone, who said, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, into his voicemail. Seventeen minutes later, Leah called her mom at 7.21 p.m. from a cell phone store. She needed Betsy, the account holder, to authorize an upgrade. Now, the two had spoken earlier, and Betsy had assured Leah that she'd be available to make the authorization. But Betsy didn't pick up the phone, despite having talked to Leah nearly 20 minutes prior. At 9 p.m., Russ left Michael Corbin's house. All the attendees of game night gave statements that Russ had been within eight feet of them the entire time. From the Corbin's home, Russ stopped at Arby's on Raymond Drive in Lake St. Louis and bought two sandwiches. This was also captured on camera. From there, he drove the 25 miles home. When he arrived home, Russ took the dog food from his back seat, went inside, and placed the dog food on the floor. He took off his coat, and that's when he found his wife lying on the floor. His call to 911 went through at 9.40 p.m. To the investigators, Russ was somehow capable of killing his wife and doing so without getting a drop of blood on him. Yes, Russ had that on his side as well. His clothes, what he was wearing at his friend's house and seen wearing in the surveillance video captured at Arby's, that's the outfit he had on when first responders arrived at his home. And the clothes were clean. His fingernails did not contain any evidence, and additionally, his wife's DNA was not on his clothes, feet, or hands. And these details are crucial in discussing what we touched on at the top, accountability. So the week after um, everything happened, um, we had my mom's funeral, and then they charged Russ the next day after my mom's funeral. And um, that week is when they brought like my mom's entire family down to Lincoln County and just laid it all out on the table. Like he did this, here's all the circumstantial evidence. Here's his lineup. He was planning to do this. Um, We got caught him on camera three different times. um, Just giving an alibi. I was curious how investigators or the prosecution had explained away Russ's alibi, his whereabouts, that was pretty indisputable. Here's what Mariah had to say. On the way to his friend's house, he made three different stops. He stopped at gas station one for cigarettes. He stopped at gas station two for a drink. Why didn't he get the drink and the cigarettes at the same gas station? And then he went and got dog food. So they're like making it seem like he knew there were cameras there. He knew he's trying to get an alibi. Boom, boom, boom. Viewing and funeral services had been held for Betsy on January 2nd and 3rd. And by January 4th, after a 12-year marriage, 41-year-old Russ Faria was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and armed criminal action. What was your relationship like up until this time with your stepfather? Really good. I mean, I was always known as like the daddy's girl and my mom or my sister was like the mommy's girl. Like they kind of had a closer bond and then me and him kind of had a closer bond. He took me to the movies all the time. We um, 
just went on like our own personal vacation. I think it was that October we went to Cedar Point um, in Ohio. I mean, it, it wasn't us who was like, he did this. It was the prosecuting attorney and the detectives made their mind up as soon as they heard the 911 call, they saw that crime scene. It's just crazy looking back considering he had an ironclad alibi. And they just always said, oh, they're lying for him, whether they know what he did or not. Um, it's just their their alibis are just too... They all said the same time. They all said they did this at a certain time. They they all just like knew their alibis so well that it had to be made up, is what they were saying to us. How long did it take you to start believing them? I always like questioned it, like when we would be at that round table, because we had a couple of those meetings and we would always say, well, what about Pam Hupp? Because just some of this does not make sense. And they would always be like, well, she physically couldn't do this. Um, you're, no offense, but your mom was dying of cancer anyway. She would get the money eventually. And they just would say, say kind of harsh things to invalidate our feelings or my feelings and my sister's feelings. It was just, oh, we know what we're doing. We got our guy. Think about that logic. A woman wasn't physically capable of stabbing another woman one who was in an already weakened state due to cancer and chemotherapy treatments. Prosecutor Leah Cheney told KSDK News in 2021 that Pam Hupp was using a cane at the time of the murder. During Pam's multiple interviews with police and the prosecution, her story would change about the extent of her medical issues and whether or not they affected her back, her memory, or whatever suited her at the moment. Any reasonable person would have asked, well, what about Pam? What about my mom's friend that was with her that night? Who had insisted on giving mom a ride? Who didn't have an alibi? Questions were dismissed and thoughts invalidated. The stars were aligning for Pam Hupp, and her plan was working. I didn't know everything at that time, obviously. But, um... Yeah, I mean, we didn't even really know how much they were neglecting to look at Pam Hupp until recently, 2021, when they just charged her. So whenever they said in 2021, like how disturbing um, the investigation was and um, that they're looking into the investigation of the original investi initial investigation, it was just kind of like, so they really didn't do their jobs and just completely neglected to look at her and dishonored my mom's death. Pam had been questioned by the major case squad the morning after Betsy's murder. After all, she was with Betsy sometime before she was killed, and she'd confirmed that info. She told the first of what would become many different versions of events, that she had dropped Betsy off but didn't go inside the house that night. That story changed later, when she'd say that she did go inside. When asked about the $150,000 life insurance policy that had recently been changed, naming Pam as the sole beneficiary, she said that Betsy had wanted her daughters to have the money and didn't trust that Russ would manage it responsibly. It even came out later that Pam had used Betsy's computer to send an email from Betsy's account to Pam's 
essentially to make it seem like Betsy wanted Pam to have the money. Pam threw shade at Russ in general, painting him as a villain and an awful husband, but again, this is not the Pam show, and I'm hesitant to give her lies too much attention. A look at Pam's phone showed that she and Betsy had exchanged text on December 27th and that Pam had insisted on picking Betsy up from chemo and bringing her home. There was also a call from Pam's phone to Betsy at 7.27 p.m., a call that had gone unanswered. When asked about it, Pam said she was calling Betsy to let her know she was close to home. That story also changed later when cell phone locations were tracked. In early January 2012, luminescence testing was done at Russ and Betsy's home to see if there were any traces of blood that may have been cleaned up. The report showed traces on a kitchen drawer handle that stored some towels, as well as on some of the floor between where Betsy's body was found and the back door. This may have indicated that whoever killed Betsy may have been bringing the dog out to the backyard, where it was located when Russ arrived home. But the luminescence testing led to differing opinions between the evidence technician, the sheriff's department. What it came down to was there was no agreement on whether or not traces of blood were actually present or that a cleanup had taken place. Deputy Ryan McCarrick presented Prosecutor Leah Askey, Cheney, with a probable cause statement, and Russ was charged and indicted by a grand jury. What followed for the next 10 years? Two trials, a wrongful conviction, and a second murder. Possibly even a third. All orchestrated by one woman who was motivated by greed. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that mental health and self-care are taking more of a front seat these days. Therapy has helped me when I felt overwhelmed and needed to sort some things out. Maybe you're feeling more stressed lately or like you're struggling with work or personal relationships. However you're feeling, you deserve to be happy and to know that there is no shame in therapy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy. In under 48 hours, you could be communicating with a therapist by phone, live chat, or video if you're comfortable. Now is a good time to invest in yourself and see what online therapy is all about. And special offer to Method and Madness listeners. You can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash method and madness. That's better com slash method and madness. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. And now you testified at Russ's trial. Yes, that correct? Um, at both trials. Yeah, the week before we went on the stand for the first trial, I had a meeting with um, Leah Askey and the victim's advocate to make sure I'm on their side. Um, so I wonder how professional that was. <laughs> but basically my sister and I went on the trial to um, kind of give his character. Um, so they just asked us all the bad 
things we've witnessed over the years growing up. Never the good, never the good. So it can fit their narrative. Um, and yeah, I mean, that was traumatizing within itself. Um, so, and then my sister did not want to go on the stand on the second trial, um, the retrial. Right. And she was like, I do not want to go on the stand. I don't care what, what you have to do. I'm, I'm not going up there. And Leah asked you, was like, well, you're going up there. I'm going to subpoena you. So she basically, I mean, when you're subpoenaed, you're, you have to go on the stand. You don't have, you don't have an option. And so the prosecution got what they wanted. Any negative thing Russ had done or even a small trait he had that would contribute to his guilt was highlighted in court. Much of it fueled by Pam, who had taken whatever she could get from observing the relationship between Betsy and Russ. If she witnessed him get angry even once, as we all do, she would use that, file it away for later. It seemed like a classic frame job. Pam saw the opportunity to get a large sum of cash and turned that opportunity into a reality. But what about that cash? Pam originally said that the reason Betsy had changed the beneficiary was to ensure that Leah and Mariah received the money. And with Betsy now deceased, where was it? Certainly not with her daughters. Pam would go on to change that story too, that it wasn't meant for Mariah and Leah Day, or it was only to be used at Pam's discretion. But nothing about the life insurance would be heard in court, not by the jury, per Pike and Lincoln County Judge Chris Kunza Menemeyer. She prevented jurors from hearing any of that evidence, much to the dismay of Russ Faria and his attorney, Joel Schwartz. All the jury knew was that Russ Faria must have killed his wife because nobody else had a motive. And according to Leah Cheney, it was Russ who was motivated by rage and greed, having found out that he was no longer the beneficiary. The jury also never got to hear from the 911 operator who would have said that she found Russ genuinely distraught. And finally, no juror heard that Pam had insisted on driving Betsy home that night. So let's recap all of that. Russ had an alibi, several of them, but Leah Cheney contended that they were all lying for him. He was captured on camera with receipts all lining up with the timeline he provided. Leah Cheney contended that he went home, murdered Betsy, and then went to Arby's. He had no blood on his clothes and no bloody clothing in his home other than the slippers. When first responders arrived the night of December 27th, he was wearing the same clothing. Leah Cheney suggested that Russ may have taken his clothes off, murdered his wife, showered, and then got redressed and went to Arby's to establish an alibi. There were no signs of blood in the shower. And so in 2013, Russ Faria was convicted of Betsy's murder and sentenced to life without parole. Russ Faria had served two years of his life sentence when he was released on bond in June 2015 and granted a new trial that November, thanks to the tireless work of his attorney, Joel Schwartz. 
an appeals court ordered the judge to revisit the case, citing investigatory issues in the original trial, including allegations that Prosecutor Leah Cheney may have been having an inappropriate relationship with a police officer involved in the case. This was denied by both parties. Judge Stephen Omer granted the motion for the new trial and also stated that he never found any evidence that Leah Cheney and the officer were involved in a relationship. During the second trial, Joel Schwartz was able to present his theory that Pam Hupp had manipulated Betsy into making her the beneficiary of the life insurance policy and had then murdered Betsy and framed Russ. The defense also had detectives testify about Pam Hupp's changing stories. And finally, in November of 2015, Russ Faria was acquitted of the murder charges, his previous conviction overturned, and he was released after spending 41 months and 12 days behind bars. It was a massive victory for Russ Faria and Joel Schwartz, a wrongfully convicted man, the lawyer that fought for him, but unfortunately there was damage that had already been done. And now your relationship with, with Russ has not been the same? Nope. Uh, we've written a couple letters back and forth when he was in jail. Um, but um, yeah, we haven't spoken or anything since my mom's funeral, I feel like. Uh, yeah. Do you think there's a chance that that can ever be repaired? Um, with a lot of healing. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I, I think it would be nice for some closure, at least like a conversation or something um, just on both ends. But I don't know. We can't force people to change their mind and how they feel about something. Right. Now, did you ever encounter Pam in either of the two trials? She only came to the trials whenever she had to be on the stand. Um, so for the first trial, when they put her on the stand, um, during recess, like the jury couldn't hear her on the stand because I, I don't even know why. Um, but she basically came in and then left. So she never really stayed. And during that time, I'm thinking like, if you were a true friend, wouldn't you stay to see like what happened? And what about that money? That money that Pam received, did Betsy's daughters ever see it? We found out during our civil trial because we sued her for the money, but it turned out that since there was no like writing, no like contract for her to give it to us, that we ended up losing that civil case. Um, so we found out that she bought a house with it. So she like put it into property and I mean, she knew what she was doing. Yes, you heard that right. Leah and Mariah Day never saw a dime of their mother's money. Pam got to keep it. Her ickiness knew no bounds, and as reported by Fox 2's Chris Hayes, who's done extensive reporting on this case, one would think Pam would lay low at this point. But she didn't. The walls were closing in. Russ was free. It was time to do something. On August 16, 2016, 
Pam Hupp called 911 and reported that someone was breaking into her home. While on the phone with the operator, shots were heard, and first responders arrived to find 33-year-old Louis Gumpenberger shot dead in Pam's home. Pam told law enforcement that she had arrived home after running errands, and a car had pulled up in front of her house. A man emerged with a knife and got into her front seat. Pam said that she was able to fight the man off and get out of the car. As she was running toward her house, through her garage, the man followed her. Pam said she went into her bedroom, but the man continued to follow her as she called 911, grabbed a gun from her nightstand, and then shot the intruder until she was out of bullets. When questioned about the intruder, Pam again tried to place blame on Russ Faria, vaguely mentioning that the man who'd entered her house had told her they were going to, quote, get Russ's money. After investigating further, it was discovered that Pam Hupp had planned it all. It was a premeditated murder. She had been casing out neighborhoods, driving around, and offering complete strangers odd jobs until she got a bite. Unfortunately, it was an innocent man, Louis Gumpenberger, a father of two who got into Pam's car. She drove him back to her house and then put her plan into action, calling 911 and killing Lewis to make it look like self-defense. She had left a trail of evidence in her pursuit of what the St. Louis Patch called a patsy. She was arrested, charged, and convicted of Lewis's murder, and is currently serving life in prison with no chance of parole. Pam would do anything to take the attention off of herself and on to Russ. I want to say it was after Russ, um, after Russ got acquitted, my sister and I was working at the same restaurant and we got a letter, an anonymous letter that was typed um, from, um, we got an anonymous letter that was typed and it didn't say who it was from, but it kind of like made it seem like it was from someone affiliated with Russ. Like it was kind of like talking smack about how we went on the stand. And then it was just talking smack about our appearances. Like it kind of sounded like a high schooler wrote it. Um, so we didn't really know what to think of it at that time. Um, we kind of like had thoughts it could be from Pam Hop, But then again, we were like, well, Russ's family was so mad at us whenever we went on the stand against him. Um, so it could be someone from him. Like we had no idea because it just felt like we had so many haters out there from what we went through. And um, yeah, well, I mean, now we're for sure. We know it's from Pam Hupp, but um, at the time it was just a random hateful letter that it could have been from two different, I, we just had no idea. Pam harassing Betsy's family is detestable. And then there's the possibility of what she's done to her own family. Back in 2013, Pam Hupp's mother died at the senior community, Lakeview Park, where she was living. 77-year-old Shirley Newman was living with Alzheimer's and was found dead on the lawn underneath her balcony on the afternoon of October 31st, 2013. A housekeeper had checked on her when she didn't show up for lunch and found Shirley's front door and patio door open. 
Out on the patio, there was damage to the vertical bars of the third-floor balcony. At the time, it seemed reasonable that her medication had made her dizzy and she'd lost her balance and fallen. Her daughter, Pam, was reportedly the last person with her. Shirley was worth half a million dollars, and guess who would inherit the money? At the time of Shirley's death, Pam was not considered a suspect. In fact, nobody was, and the death was ruled accidental. After Pam was arrested for the murder of Louis Gumpenberger, the manner of death was changed to undetermined, but no official foul play investigation has been opened. How can one look at all these innocent lives lost and not think if only the investigation had gone in the right direction, if only people in authority followed through on their end, if only. Mariah Day talks a lot about her own trauma and about the importance of victim advocacy. I just want people to be aware of the victims and their families. And if it kind of feels disrespectful to them or kind of icky, stop watching it. Stop giving these big platforms your views or your ratings. Um, I think it's important to that they have empathy and that they are able to think or put them sh- themselves in our shoes and see how they would feel about watching uh, their loved ones or their loved ones' stories like that. Right. So it's just be aware and be mindful is all we ask. I would have liked to see more about the victims or more about who she was before. Um, I would have liked to see more awareness, um, less of a mockery. I mean, I know it is kind of a mockery on how they handled everything, but people's lives were changed. People died, two people died, allegedly three people died. Just so many families were um, affected by this, and it's just, we shouldn't have to turn on the TV and watch it all over again as a joke. It should be more informative. It should be more about bringing awareness to wrongful convictions and what uh, these people in power can do. So much injustice, a brutal murder, a wrongful conviction, and one more innocent person dead. Possibly three if it turns out that Pam had caused her mother's death. And for Mariah, throughout the years, it hurts seeing others profiting off of her mother's death and not giving back. Many content creators do give back to families, to organizations, to charities, to finding missing persons. This is where the true crime as entertainment aspect can get tricky. I guess everything is entertainment to an extent, but when you're constantly taking people's tragedy and profiting from it like such a big corporation does you would think that they would give back to at least those families or at least an organization like you said so what now will there ever be justice for betsy faria new lincoln county prosecutor mike wood held a press conference announcing new criminal charges you may know I'm here to announce that we have filed uh, murder charges in the first degree against Pamela Hub in the stabbing death of Betsy Faria. We will be seeking the death penalty in this case. I do not take lightly the decision to pursue the death penalty, but this case stands alone in its heinousness and depravity. 
such that it shocks the conscience. For a decade, this case has loomed large as a dark cloud over Lincoln County. And in late December 2018, as I was sworn in at the, as the prosecuting attorney here in this spot, I knew we had to work diligently to begin a thorough review of the facts surrounding Betsy's death. It's an obligation I owe to the family of Betsy Faria, as well as to the citizens of this county. After a complete and comprehensive review and investigation, I came to the conclusion that beyond a reasonable doubt, Pamela Hupp killed Betsy Faria, and I believe her motivation was simple, for greed. Just four days prior to Betsy's death, Pam Hupp became the sole beneficiary of Betsy Faria's $150,000 life insurance policy. Pamela Hupp, the facts in this case are quite simply indisputable. Pamela Hupp was the last person to see Betsy alive. Cell phone records indicate that she was at or near the home at the time of the death. She knew that Betsy's husband would not be home that night. She lied about her whereabouts. She lied about the details. And lastly, she murdered an innocent man in cold blood to prevent herself from being considered a suspect. Additionally, he announced that there could be further criminal prosecution and that he has information that proved witnesses were asked to lie on the stand and that after Russ was acquitted, the sheriff's office had drafted a destruction order to allow for all physical evidence in Betsy's case to be destroyed. Prosecutors and investigators denied it all the same. Sadly, all of these facts were available to prosecutors at the beginning. Even while Betsy's husband was twice prosecuted for her death, this was one of the poorest examples of investigative work that I, as well as my team, have ever encountered, driven largely by ego, working toward an agenda rather than truth. And because of this, I'm also announcing today that we are launching an investigation into the potential prosecutorial and police misconduct in the Faria investigation. The former Lincoln County prosecutor, Leah Cheney, has denied withholding evidence from Russ's lawyer and denied telling witnesses to lie. She still stands by her statement that the evidence presented to her by the St. Louis Major Case Squad pointed to Russ's guilt, and that if she tried to question the evidence, she was told, quote, don't Nancy drew it. Mariah has already seen changes in how the upcoming trial is being handled by Mike Wood and the investigative team. So as far as I know, they're doing their jobs. Right. Because our first meeting with these new detectives, when they brought us in and asked us um, some questions before they charged her, um, I asked them about the whole sit down at the table. And I was like, is that normal? And they're like, no, absolutely not these people in power have the um, the power to hold people's lives at stake, whether they go to jail or not, they should have people looking through them or they should have like another set of eyes kind of like if they don't know what they're doing or like some kind of protocol so that people can be either held accountable or they don't put the wrong person in jail. Pam Hupp has repeatedly denied that she had any part in Betsy's murder. I asked Mariah, how can content creators, journalists, producers, how can we do better? She talks about the dramatized miniseries starring Renee Zellweger. As soon as I saw the trailer, I was just kind of like, what? And 
Um, and then I had a TikTok go viral. And then that's when they want to reach out to me and say, let me explain the context of the show to you. You had, you had my number, you had my information. You could have done that before I had to see the trailer. The way she's consoling me in the show never happened. Like she was not close to my family like that. So that's really um, uncomfortable to see. They made it seem like she was so close to our family and manipulated us into believing it was him whenever we, she never even told me, I'm sorry for your loss. Like we've never really spoken back and forth. But they made it seem like it was way bigger than it was. They didn't really shine a very um, positive light on my mom's side of the family on that first couple episodes. Um, so, I mean, that kind of turned, turned my family off the way they portrayed them because I mean, it wasn't their fault the way they, what they were thinking either. Right. Um, and then, I don't know, it just kind of feels like they're doing any little thing to capitalize off of my mom's death, which is grimy to me. And then they know about like how much we lost when it comes to the life insurance or our parents. And yet like they don't compensate the victims or the victims' families for anything. It's like the, the um, law enforcement and prosecuting attorney abuse their power to wrongfully convict. And then the media is abusing their power to grime Grimily, is that even a word? <laughs> it is now. Um, <laughs> grimily. <laughs> grimily get our story and then portray it for their benefit. It's just, yeah, it's definitely one hit after another. And I know um, making it even more dramatized where um, or my, my grandma was saying goodbye to my mom um, right before she left in Pam's car and my grandma like went outside to say goodbye. She didn't do that. And I know that's like a small dramatiz dramatization, but um, that really hurt my grandma to see. And it's like, we're real people. We still live everyday lives. And then with the social media and them using our real names, they're able to look us up. And then I've gotten messages from multiple people. Uh, most of them are nice, but I have had a few hate messages from what they've seen on the show. And it's just very unfortunate. What would you like to say to any listeners who may be dealing with a similar tragedy? Going through something so tragic, it's really easy to feel alone. Um, so it's important to find a good support system through everything um, and healthy ways to cope. Um, if you're going through it now, or if you have gone through it, or if you, if you already went through it, you know that you've already lived through some of your darkest days. So find your reasons to live and brighter days will be ahead. That's so beautiful. So tell the listeners, what do you have going on and where can we find you? My agent has my book on submission with publishers right now, which is exciting. And um, I've been finding a huge support system through my TikTok, Trauma Mama Mo, which the support there blows me away. Um, I'm also doing 
um, my first public speaking gig, sharing uh, my experience at uh, True Crime Podcast Festival. In Dallas. Yes. I will be seeing you there, and I'm looking forward to hearing you speak on bringing the victims back into the picture. That makes me feel a lot better knowing someone in the crowd. Don't think I'm weird if I look at you the whole time. <laughs> I'm like, I know someone in the crowd. I'm just going to exactly. stare at you. Just stare at my, <laughs> my forehead. Sister's actually, yeah. <laughs> my sister's actually going with me, too, for support. Oh, oh good. What was your favorite quality that your mom had? I think my favorite was how positive she was um, in any situation. Um, She was always there for her friends. She was an amazing friend. And like the reason why I'm such a good friend is because I grew up watching my mom be a friend. I think my mom would be proud that I can find something positive to come out of it. Thank you to my very special guest, Mariah Day. I hope I did your story justice. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast. If you'd like to show your support, you can leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser. It makes the show more visible for new listeners. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod, and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook. To chat or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It is sound edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected Podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast that discusses dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.